welcome to the Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You are with Ian. And with Mike. And together we are rereading chapter by chapter the Aubrey Maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, could you please catch us up with where we got to last time and help us anticipate what's coming up this week? Oh, I'd be delighted to. Thanks, Ian. So last time in chapter two... The Surprise chased a French ship with a former United Irishman aboard, and they chased him right up the Irish Sea, really taking him off their journey. Now, Stephen considered using a magnet to take the Surprise off course. He was so afraid of them taking this ship and having the United Irishman discovered because he didn't want to appear to be an informer or to be associated in any way with this man's hanging. Well, Luckily, happily, Stephen did not do that. And while he slept under the influence of laudanum and prayer, the winds changed and the surprise lost her chase. So as we close the chapter, a much happier Stephen and the surprise sailed on for Lisbon to begin, finally, their South American mission. Well, (laughs) this time, as we jump into chapter three, Jack is worrying about his new purser, He's also worrying that the crew is starting to think about this as an unlucky voyage, and he really wants to focus on restoring their spirits. Now, Stephen gets a big surprise visitor in Lisbon, and we continue to have these backward glances at Master and Commander as we read through Chapter 3 today and actually begin a little bit of Chapter 4. Absolutely, Mike. We've got lots to talk about, and we're both really enjoying these two chapters. And I've got to say, super looking forward to chapter four. It's a great one. So here we are. We're aboard the Surprise, and uh, Jack asks Bonden to invite Stephen to come up on deck if he, Stephen, is at leisure. Stephen's been playing the cello. He puts it down, comes on deck, and Jack shows him what he says is the last glimpse he'll have of Ireland, his native land. And remember, we've kind of gone up the east coast of Ireland and now we're off the north, the northwest coast of Ireland. And uh, Stephen, who's very fond of Ireland, does indeed take a look. He takes a quick glance, hands the telescope back, not wanting to look for too long at this part of Ireland. This is Malin Head. Since, the text says, he knew from personal experience that part of this province was inhabited by a tattling, guileful, tail-bearing, noisy, contemptible, mean, wretched, unsteady, and inhospitable people. And Mike, uh, this is this is pretty grim stuff. This is a, a, a the people that we hate the most, right, are our near neighbours. And Stephen's got no time at all for the people of the Northwest. This is Malinhead, which is part of what these days is the, the northernmost part of the Irish Republic. This seems to be a reference maybe back to the, the activities in the 1798 rebellion and Stephen's dim view of informers. We know that the city that's nearby is Londonderry, and we know that Robert Stewart, who was Viscount Castlereagh, who became Marquess of Londonderry, had been uh, had served as Chief Secretary and Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, um, who took severe and successful measures at the time to quell the revolt in 1798. So there's an association there with the forces that were there putting down the rebellion. The city of Derry, sometimes also called Londonderry, itself is actually in modern Northern Ireland, so not in County Donegal, where Malin Head is, but pretty close geographically. Derry itself is a famously sectarianly divided city, the setting for one of my favourite current TV comedies, The Derry Girls. So it's hard to tell here whether 
Stephen has an issue with informers in general, with, with County Donegal, with people from Derry or from the Northwest. If we had Paddy Cullivan around still, we'd maybe ask him, but he's busy on tour. So, hmm, we just have to kind of stroke our chins over this one. S- Stephen, meanwhile, heads back to his cabin. He's practicing the Mozart quartet that he hopes to play with Jack, with Martin, and with the far more accomplished musically purser, Mr. Standish, in just a few days. Well, we remember last time that Jack had promised Stephen that they were going to make a great offing. And and they're right in the midst of it now. They said that that, you know, the friendship that they were chasing is probably hopelessly embayed for a long time, but they are headed as nearly west as the southwest wind will allow them. And Jack's really pleased with his navigation. He's pleased with the wind, but he's very concerned by what he perceives to be this very low-spirited, disappointed ship's company. And he fears that they might be using words like unlucky voyage or Jonah aboard. Mm. You know, just kind of, you know, with all his time, you know, before the mast and yeah, he's just thinking this is, this is not right. And he's thinking to himself too, you know, Hey, I don't have any Marines. There's no articles of war. And, and really, you know, my authority a captain on this ship depends solely on my standing and my past and present success. We just had a prize get away from us. You know, we've had these issues with Standish and, and he is, uh, O'Brien tells us he's very instinctive and he's surprisingly accurate. Jack's feelings here. Yeah. So it's not the first time that we've had Jack feeling uneasy about whether he's really got the, uh, got the mood of the crew behind him they are otherwise continuing the voyage in a fairly conventional way they're out far into the atlantic we get the daily routine of ship life turning into this really predictable pattern we've got sea and sky what o'brien calls the daily violent emotion and enthusiasm of great gun practice is getting everybody back to being cheerful in the old ways jack is spending more in on on powder than he would ever have made if they'd taken the snow so he's really investing far ahead of what the short-term kind of prize return is here. He knows how important rapid, accurate fire is and is going to be. He knows how much training these new Orkney men need. And slightly weirdly, O'Brien mentions that they're all adept at using crossbows. And I don't think anybody's ever used a crossbow in naval warfare since the Middle Ages. Jack knows what the sights and sounds and emotions of competitive gun practice can do to restore the status of the surprise as, as O'Brien calls it, a happy ship the only efficient fighting machine, the only ship it was a pleasure to command. So, Mike, uh, Jack's here reaching for the pleasure of command as well as reaching for that status of being kind of efficient and and in good order. Yeah. And, and, you know, what we just love, having this guy at the helm, you know, having yeah. this guy running the place here. So, and he, you know, Jack knows it's not just him. It's really important to have the right crew. The right officers are especially important um and you know especially when the crew has men who might as as o'brien say become both awkward and disconnected for example eight of the Selmerstonians have actually commanded their own ships in the past so sometimes you know these people might not take as easily you know something not going well and to that end he knows it's important also not to have an ill-fitting member in the gun room that while you know that might not be so bad on a on a short journey on a journey like this, you know, such a long journey where that small society and those little differences, kind of like that pebble in your shoe on a long hike, you know, can assume gigantic proportions, you know, and that 
you know, those proportions fall out onto the workings of the ship and the rest of the crew. And to that end, Jack is starting to wonder, you know, whether he should have made Standish purser, you know, whether he should have done it just because he was an excellent violin player, whether he should have done it just because Martin, you know, had kind of recommended him based at their time together sometime, uh, you know, back at Oxford. And, and Jack realizes, you know, he'd done it despite the fact that Standish had a complete lack of experience in the job as purser or anything related to it and no experience at sea. And he was now seeing that, you know, he was completely wrong. Um, he's an excellent violinist, but he's incompetent at his job. He can't add and multiply. He's seasick all the time. And increasingly, he's just leaving all his work to his steward, who they called Jack in the Dust. <laughs> and, and Jack in the Dust was new to me. I know some of you naval types out there will recognize this as yeah. you know an old Royal Navy name for a purser's assistant, which came from the original dusty atmosphere in the bread storeroom. You know, that dust from the flour and dried biscuits. You know, a little research tells us that some U.S. Navy ships still use it as an informal title for a culinary specialist in charge of canned goods. So, huh. you know, what a, what a fascinating modern world we live in. Yeah, but Sanish's personality, Jack says, you know, he's, he's actually starting to write this to, uh, to Sophie. Um, it, it's changed. You know, when, when they met him, he was modest and diffident because he was unemployed. But now that he's got a steady income and a, and a job, you know, he's becoming displeasing. You know, he just talks way too much, very correcting, very patronizing, and really talks only about himself. And he's kind of putting on this university man persona. And that's very off-putting to Pullings and West and Davidge, kind of his fellow officers here, you know, kind of setting himself apart for that. Um, Jack is particularly upset that he's also ruining their music together. He's always correcting Martin, you know, and he's presuming to teach all of them how to play better. Jack is kind of saying, I'm not going to be playing second fiddle to this guy, even though I am playing second fiddle to this guy. And, <laughs> and he's getting to the point, which, you know, grieves me that Jack is really no longer looking forward to their musical get togethers. Uh, wow. Now, he's written all this in a in a serial letter to Sophie, but then he stops and he, he realizes that Sophie doesn't like fault finding and he knows that the written word can sometimes seem harsher than the spoken word. Boy, mm. uh, you know, something for all of us to take <laughs> note of on social media here, right? Oh, yes, <laughs> yeah. indeed. So Jack, being the man he is, balls the paper up and throws it into the trash can where it will only be read by Killick and, you know, shared with his his favorite confidants. <sighs> And this is a shame. Jack had clearly bet a lot on the musical value of having this companion standish with him, and it really seems like it's not working out. I'm not even sure that it's fair to say that Standish's character has changed. Maybe Jack is learning that maybe he's not such a great judge of character, and maybe there's more to life than just being a decent fiddle player. Yeah, great point, Ian. Now, Jack hasn't got to worry about music for that night. Um, Standish is seasick, and... Martin, who as Standish's early acquaintance, as the text calls him, and as the assistant surgeon feels the responsibility of holding the bowl for him. And Mike, I'm really glad that Standish has a friend to hold the bowl for him because I don't think I would ever. Jack and Stephen get the chance to play just like old times, playing together. And they enjoy improvising, which is a, a game that they can play together that doesn't 
need you to have a particularly skillful violin player alongside them and takes them back to what O'Brien calls a place of their deep mutual understanding. And maybe there's a little bit of a lesson being learned there that Stephen and Jack should cherish what they have between them and their friendship and that just going looking for kind of exciting, glittering new characters and skills to add to their to their musical ensembles isn't always going to result in happiness and friendship. Right. This this rough sea that's making Standish so seasick continues. They get out into the westerlies. Standish is still prostrated with seasickness. He doesn't return to deck until the evening before they reach Lisbon. So they've gone all the way across the famously rough Bay of Biscay. They've gone all the way down the coast of Spain and Portugal, and they're almost at Lisbon when Standish finally recovers his spirits and discovers that they are anchored in the still waters off of Lisbon waiting for the pilot. The pilot's going to take them into the river and into the harbour mouth, into Lisbon. And the pilot explains the unlucky fate of ships who've risked going themselves as the pilot is waiting there on the tide to take them in. Um, Stephen and Martin take Standish up into the main top to explain the process of getting underway. So, Mike, we get this nice illustration coming up now of, from a stranger's, from a newcomer's perspective, what's going on aboard the ship. Stephen and Martin so have taken Standish up to the main top. They're explaining the capstan, which is the big the big drum, the big winch, as you might call it, mounted in the deck that the hands are going to use to weigh anchor. And we've seen and talked about this manoeuvre of weighing anchor before. But we get a bit of detail. There's the messenger, the, the endless loop of rope, that the capstan bears on. There are the nippers and how they bear on the rope on the cable itself as they're bringing the uh, bringing the anchor up here. They try to explain this. They try to explain how there are multiple anchors because the ship is moored head and stern. Standish is hopelessly lost. He can't understand. He can't really visualize or imagine as well what's going on out of sight. He hears the Shelmiston fiddler and the shanty singing members of the crew providing the soundtrack as the capstan goes round and round. And the first anchor comes up and Mike it's, it's really funny it's no longer a midshipman or an officer that we need to provide the nautical commentary actually Stephen and Martin are sufficiently well versed in what's going on at sea to give their own advice and a little bit like they give advice when Standish had landed in the water when he first joined the ship um, they're actually pretty accurate and it's almost hard to believe that these are the same people who were such terrible lovers earlier on in the story yeah, I, I kind of waited to, to to find a mistake here, like when he was yeah. practicing on Graham, you know, a few books back here. Um, and, and I thought I had found it. You know, Stephen at one time says, but their task is almost over. For if I do not mistake, we are short stay a peak. I say we are short stay a peak. But before he could insist on this term better than any Martin could produce and reasonably accurate, a voice from the forecastle called, Heave and away, sir. And, and you know, we, we break back in and the fiddlers go and everything. And I thought, you know, why is Stephen pounding on this verse, short stay of peak? Maybe this is it. Maybe this is O'Brien telling us it's wrong. And and so, you know, I, I found out that a peak, you know, is referring to the anchor and the ropes kind of being in a vertical position there. So yeah. it's, you know, it's been brought in enough that it, you know, the ship is right over the anchor. But, but this phrase, short stay of peak, well... In episode 100, you talked about Frederick Marriott, you know, who served as a midshipman under Lord Cochrane and, and wrote Midshipman Easy. And in another one of his books, Poor Jack, we have the line, the men hove in the cable in silence and were short stay a peak. So my gosh, you know, I'm, my hat's off to Stephen, glass of wine with you. You you are mastering the nautical jargon, certainly far more than I have here. Right? 
Certainly, certainly is. And you know, Marriott's a pretty authoritative source. As we've said before, Marriott actually served with Cochrane. So well done, Stephen. Well done, Martin. It turns out then that Standish has just got to kind of take it, all of this nautical education that he's getting at the hands of uh, of Stephen and, uh, and Martin here. I'm a bit unsure, though, about what to make of Standish. Is he going to be in some way the new Stephen? Is he going to be the new lubber character who has to have everything explained to him? so that that gives room for Stephen to be a more conventional kind of all-knowing hero? I'm not sure. I certainly look backwards in the story, and the last couple of chapters of Letter of Mark, we had Standish on the scene. He hasn't played much role before now. With with spoilers slightly in mind, I'm cautious about saying we look ahead and there's not very much of Standish, very many books into the future, so I'm really not sure whether he's why he's created this character only to kind of, I don't know, step away from him again. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I, I, I really have wondered the same thing, Ian. I mean, you know, we're getting a little bit of this feeling in, in this chapter, in the last chapter as we go forward, a little bit of, about, you know, how do we judge people and their character? <laughs> how do we suit them up, whether they're good for a position or not? And Standish is, is certainly a nice example of that. And we're getting a little bit, and we'll have some more of, of this kind of, you know, how have people developed and come along? And we'll see a lot more about, you know, who was Jack when Jack and Stephen first met, who was Stephen when Jack and Stephen first met, you know, with these references back to Master and Commander, and we'll soon be getting into Stephen's early diaries. So yeah. I don't know, but I'm, I'm with you. I, I've got a little bit of a, I, I'd be fascinated to know what our listeners think. You know, what yeah. role is Standish serving here, if any? Yeah, yeah. Tell us what you think. Anyhow, we do get this nice little bit of maturity for Stephen, knowing more about the sea. It's a little measure of how much he's come on as a character. And it's an interesting little echo as well of some of the education that Stephen himself got in the early tales of the canon. I'm like, this is something we're going to come back to again and again in, in these first few chapters here. Lots of echoes and callbacks to the early world of Master and Commander and HMS Surprise. Now, back down on deck where Jack is chatting away to the pilot who's about to take them into Lisbon, Jack offers to grease the pilot's palm and says there's an extra five guineas for him if he gets them in in time for Jack to eat dinner at three o'clock. And this is a nice example of the the preoccupation that Jack has with the timing of his eating. Um, O'Brien reminds us that Aubrey is an old-fashioned creature in some ways, as his hero Nelson had been. He still wore his hair long and plaited in a clubbed pigtail, not cut in the short, modern Brutus manner. He put his hat athwart ships rather than fore and aft, and he liked his dinner at the traditional captain's two o'clock. So we get this nice moment here of Jack and his even more old-fashioned stomach expressing displeasure that the two o'clock dinner is becoming more like the custom on land of five or six or seven o'clock. Most captains, post-captains with guests have dinner at three o'clock and Jack thinks that's quite enough. And he heads off below to see if a biscuit and some Madeira will quiet the wolf within. Well, it, when Jack gets to the cabin, he sees that Stephen has got these papers spread out. He's working figures. He's got an almanac that's ending with a C, not with a K. We talked about that last episode in front of him. And, and Jack asks if Stephen's calculating when they'll pick up the westerly trades. And, and you know, now, if Stephen's down here plotting the ship's course, uh, that's, that's going to be a little bit much for me here. 
But Stephen says, yeah, no, I'm going to leave that to you, Jack, right? He's trying to determine the saint's day upon which his daughter is most likely going to be born because he says he wants to spread his offerings across the most likely saints so that he has, you know, whatever day it is covered here. He's thinking about getting yeah. into Lisbon, going to visit the patriarch. And he also notices the date that Padin would have been hung had it not been for what he calls Jack's great kindness. So Stephen notices that day is St. Eudoxia's day. And he, he says the same day that the Ethiopian cops so strangely celebrate Pontius Pilate. Hmm. Now, Stephen explains to Jack that when they, when they get to Lisbon, he plans to have a mass said for Padin's intention when he gets ashore. And Jack explains that, you know, his intervention on Padin's behalf was, was really not a great kindness. It was just a simple matter of making the request. You know, the officials that Jack had met with thought that Jack had come to, you know, be named to a, a cushy position where he does no work and gets paid a great deal of money, kind of leveraging his new parliamentary seat, or perhaps to have some friend appointed in a high position at court. They were only delighted to spare some commoner's life. That That's, that's piece of cake. You know, we can do that easy. And and I was kind of curious. I, you know, I, I figured, you know, it's, it's not like O'Brien just to drop these things in randomly with nothing behind it. And yeah. there were a couple of curious references here. Saint Eudoxia. This day celebrates a saint who had been a pagan, had led a sinful life. She had accumulated a lot of wealth through rich suitors and lovers. She becomes a Christian when she meets a traveling monk. She ends up giving her riches to the poor, becomes a nun. And, you know, there are a number of different stories, but, you know, all of them involve her interceding with God on behalf of a number of people. There's a number of people who have died or been mm. killed and, and she intercedes and they, you know, they are, are raised from the dead and they all become Christians as a result of her intervention and God's mercy in the story here. Well, hmm. Stephen also mentioned Pilate, who most Christians hold partially responsible for Jesus' death, but the Ethiopian Coptic Christians actually consider Pilate a saint because they believe Pilate and his family later converted to Christianity. So in, in all these stories, the commonality appears to be that a bad person is saved through the act of someone who was bad but becomes good. <laughs> and, <Right. laughs> and, and maybe, you know, we can apply this to Padin, you know, if we kind of see his addiction actions as bad, but his life spared by Jack's intervention. It could also apply to Jack in a way if we think we're kind of in the midst of a redemption story and his, re, you know, his restoration of the Navy list. And, and it also suggests this idea that people are not good or bad entirely throughout their lifetime, but they can and do change, sometimes because of circumstances, sometimes because of others around them, sometimes because of their own decisions and actions, all of which you know, makes sense in the story that we're going on here. But I can't help but notice kind of the irony of this juxtaposition of Stephen's saint stories and Jack's story about the bureaucrats <laughs> in, yeah. terms, in terms of how they each feel about saving somebody's life here. Right? Yeah, interesting, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, for, for Jack, it's not a big deal to be asked to, to spare somebody. Um, yeah, interesting juxtaposition. It, it's funny, when we first read this, and I first read this very, very kind of passing reference by Stephen to the Coptic traditions and stuff, I was just thinking, well, this is another example of how Stephen likes to drop in his knowledge of obscure or at least what 
might look to a Protestant like obscure bits of Catholic ritual, maybe even superstitions. And of course, any time that O'Brien mentions a specific uh, ritual or saint or text, there's something deeper for us to dig behind it. I think it's really great. I don't know where it comes from, Mike, but in this current first few chapters of the book, we've got a lot of what you might call Catholic business going on. We've had all this business with the the mass in Lisbon for Padine. We've had Stephen's own reflections on faith, and we're going to hear some news in a few paragraphs time, I think, a few pages time, about Sam Panda, Jack's natural son. So there's a lot going on here. Um, I'm not entirely sure, but I'll just say God bless the Pope, just in case he's listening. Absolutely. God bless the Pope. (laughs) Well, now we get back to more prosaic matters. Um, Stephen, as we've heard, is expecting to become a father. Diana's pregnant. Stephen is pretty sure that the baby will be a girl and almost takes it for granted. And Jack says, how can you be so sure? And Stephen, first of all, attributes this to Diana's character, completely illogically and unscientifically says, can you imagine her being brought to bed of anything else? And Jack muses that this isn't necessarily a given. He can imagine Diana having a boy and thinks Diana's probably actually quite close to the kind of risk-taking and daring that people associate with boys. But having heard Stephen speak of his future delight, as we get in the text here, having heard Stephen speak of his future delight in the company of this little hypothetical daughter, he merely changes the subject. And first of all, it's a nice little bit of interchange between the two of them and Jack being even wiser than Stephen, having a bit more perspective. But second of all, it's a great comment about Diana and her character and I'm probably still with Stephen to the extent that if, uh, given that what Diana's gone through, she might not necessarily want to be the first one to bring more men into the world. What do you think, Mike? No, I I couldn't agree with you more. (laughs) Well, Jack's glad that there are no other English men of war in the harbour. Jack and Stephen decide what they'll have for dinner on shore, and Jack makes sure that Stephen's got a bribe, some handy money, ready to sweeten the quarantine officer. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny. They're, they're just uh, you're handling all these administrative loose ends here. Stephen says, you know, ow, yeah, thinking about going ashore, I need to find a new servant before Killick withers away, you know, yeah. spending so much time looking after the, the two of them. And, and Jack says that any newcomer Stephen brings in is going to wither away much faster than Killick. They'll wither away from Killick's ill will, since Jack believes that Killick now looks upon both of them as his property and is going to resent anybody else looking after Stephen, with the possible exception of having somebody stand behind Stephen's chair at dinner, since despite all of Killick's efforts, he can't stand behind both of them simultaneously. Right? <laughs> Poor old Killick. I mean... It- eventually we all feel some kind of sympathy for him, (laughs) even though it feels like he brings so many things on himself. Um, Jack and Stephen get around to eating dinner. Stephen goes and sees the patriarch of Lisbon and has what he thinks is a very good visit. He's walking to his banker's correspondent when he feels he's being followed. All of a sudden, we're back in James Bond spy territory here. Stephen has this instinct that says he's being followed. And as the text says, those criminals, intelligence agents, and foxes who last, who survive to have offspring, develop an eye in the back of their heads. And I love this re- reference to them surviving to have offspring. Maybe he's thinking, I need to protect myself a little right. bit more, hold my life a little bit less cheap than I did when I was just an independent man. 
And after he's been to the bankers and got his letter of credit, a man approaches him, apologizes for the lack of ceremony, and says, Sir Joseph Blaine, staying at Quinta de Montserrat near Sintra, would like to see him and to send a carriage. And this rings all kinds of alarm bells for Stephen. He gives him this really cold tone, this reptilian glare, and says he's not at leisure. He'll see Sir Joseph back in London at the Royal or the Entomology Society. The man bearing the message is completely stunned and walks away. And Stephen gets on this one about, it's this dastardly French agent in Lisbon who'd love to cut my throat using a ruse like this with no credentials. You know, damn him for thinking that he could just get Stephen to ride off and have his throat cut. Agents are more professional than this normally, he thinks. And he's really convinced that this was a false flag approach. And by the way, Mike, this Quinta de Montserrat, this big estate, this is a, a real reference that we picked up here, right? It is, this, this Montserrat Palace. It, and it's an interesting choice for Blaine's supposed location. There is a chapel there dedicated to Our Lady of Montserrat, who, yeah. who is, by the way, the patron saint of Catalonia. So I think this would, yeah. you know go unrecognized for Stephen here. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure how habitable the estate was at this time. Uh, Lord Byron visited in 1809, and it was in ruins, but it still gets a mention in one of his poems. Um, now, it's, it's evolved. It's owned by the Portuguese government nowadays, and Stephen would love, currently there's a 25-foot totem of creatures that's carved from a deceased 50-year-old eucalyptus tree, so all these creatures celebrating nature on it, and they even have a stage beetle for Sir Joseph. So I think uh, you know, this is a great place, <laughs> and, and one Stephen would love, Sir Joseph would love, and clearly ties him back to Catalonia here. Wow. So we've, we've got to hope then this, this approach has got the grain of truth in it. But for now, Stephen's not having it. Right. He, he runs into Jack. Jack is shopping for wife supplies. He's shopping for taffeta, for a fabric. And they run into some of the Surprise's Liberty men at the quay, ride back to the ship with them. And the Shelmastonians aboard the Surprise comport themselves just like long-serving men of war's men in the captain's presence. Now, this is a, a reassuring, a comforting thing for Jack. Killick greets them, complains about Stephen's cleanliness, how he's got these stains on his nice clothes. He's upset for Stephen hadn't called for and asked for two napkins when eating. This is Killick playing the, playing the mother to a T here. Stephen undercuts him, though. I love this little moment. He says, there you go, Killick. I've brought you some march pain. March pain, another word for marzipan. And this turns Killick's mood right around. There's nothing worse, Mike, than being in the mood for a good grump and then somebody takes the wind out of your sails by being nice to you. Don't you hate when that happens? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and by the way, Mike, we've had this nice little moment now of being ashore and wandering around the institutions in Lisbon. I'm feeling a little bit shortchanged here. Normally, especially near the beginning of a book, entering a harbour is a moment when O'Brien gets us some lush visuals and he gives us imagery and light and colour and people. We had that in Hamilton. We had that in Malta, in Valletta. We've had it in other cities as well. And Lisbon is, and I'm sure at the time, was a really beautiful city. I feel like I'm missing something out here. I feel like we're being cheated of some of the local colour. Well, and, and it is interesting. We're almost getting... You know, with Stephen being followed here, eyes in the back of your head, you know, living to have offspring. You know, there's kind of a few things not happening here, as you say, the color and light that are, you know, kind of, you know, ratcheting up the tension just a little bit. Well, Stephen heads back on board. He visits Martin, who's been waiting for him. And, 
you know, they, they always have a trouble kind of finding a place where they can talk, especially when they want to say something confidentially. But they decide this time, well, you know, actually they can both speak in Latin and then they can talk in front of anybody. So Martin tells Stephen that Standish is wondering whether Jack would entertain a request for him to resign as purser. He's really not fond of the sea. He doesn't want another round of this incredible seasickness, which Stephen has told him, you know, can't be cured if Jack will release him. Now, Martin notes that Standish has always been a bit strange and, and very versatile. He, you know, he does yeah. a lot of different things. Uh, and Stephen recalls that Standish had thrown off a living in the Anglican church, that at one time, you know, he was studying theology and headed that way. Martin says that that was because he couldn't, he, Standish, couldn't subscribe to the Anglican article, which said that all masses are blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. Again, a little more Catholic business here, yeah. as you say. Yeah. Well, Stephen says, well, you know, if, if Jack releases him, what do you think he'll do? And Martin says, well, he'll wonder as Goldsmith did. Stephen says, well, you know what? I don't think anybody's going to object to his leaving. And Martin says, yeah, you know, I, I don't think he's been really good company. He has made himself pretty much disliked, something that he did not do at Oxford. And Martin confides that Standish also is afraid that it, he's really no longer good company. But Martin and Stephen both agree that it's a very honorable thing for him to do, to feel bound to Jack, you know, bound to Captain Aubrey and seeking essentially his permission to, to yeah. release. Now, this wandering as, uh, you know, like Goldsmith, Ian, any thoughts there? Well, it's an interesting thing that Stanish is obviously somebody who's a bit proud of his intellectual status and likes the idea of not being tied down, not being tied down to articles of faith, not being tied down as well. This guy, Oliver Goldsmith, who was an 18th century theologian and medic, he'd studied in Dublin, he studied in Holland, he'd wandered around Europe as a penniless explorer, you might say, came to London and got into writing. His ad writing was admired by really great figures of the day, by Johnson and Boswick and Garrick. He wrote the play She Stoops to Conquer. And Mike, that's a, a play's title that I've heard many times. I couldn't ever have told you where it comes from. And also the novel The Vicar of Wakefield. And this, this Goldsmith guy was pretty well regarded in literary society, but was clearly a bit of a character all by himself. And it's, a, it's an interesting comparison for Standish. I'm, I'm still a bit puzzled by this whole thing. Like a few pages ago, Standish was being given these great treats of nautical explanation, like he's going to be an important secondary right, character. Right. And now all of a sudden, just, just because he's on his way out. Very, very strange. Yeah. Still scratching my head here. Well, we, we've got another great literary reference coming up. The, the next day, Jack and Stephen are reading their letters. They finally gotten letters from the post that have been waiting for them there in Lisbon, and they're discussing them over breakfast. And, and Stephen just breaks the seal when he cries out, upon my word, Jack, that woman is as headstrong as an allegory on the banks of the Nile. And Ian, this, this line was immediately familiar to you. Yeah, so Stephen cries out, and he's talking here about Diana. Upon my word, Jack, that woman is as headstrong as an allegory on the banks of the Nile. And I laughed straight away. This is one of these pieces of wordplay that gets taught, at least it got taught in my school days, as a malapropism. And a malapropism, it turns out, is a reference to the name of a character in a play, Mrs. Malaprop, in Sheridan's play The Rivals, first performed in 1775. 
she gives all these kind of slightly backhanded, misused um, uses of words and being as headstrong as an allegory, meaning alligator on the Nile, right. is a classic malapropism. So it's a great bit of it's a great bit of 18th century comedy and it's a great little reference of the time for Stephen to has picked up. It's it's a very English, I would say, rather than an Irish reference. Right. So what's he upset about? What's my, what's making Diana so headstrong? She's purchased Barham Downs, which is the property that she and Stephen had fought over before the journey. It's a place where she thinks she's going to keep horses. There's a little crumb of comfort, though, here. She's not going to move there until Stephen returns. And so they, they get to carry on in the, uh, in this mode of having these... Their, their wives kind of sharing a household together. Meanwhile, that gets back gets them back into what's happening at Ashgrove Cottage, where a kitchen boiler has blown up. And Stephen comments, brother, there is much to be said for living in a monastery. <laughs> and he's clearly quite, quite glad of his occasional solitary status here. Right, right. Um, he reads out another irritating letter from his bankers. This is going to be a recurrent theme as well. Certain instructions that Stephen had left for his bankers have not been carried out. There are requests which, if they admit they might ever have received them, can no longer be found. And Stephen is really unhappy with the service that he's getting from this banker. Stick a pin in that. We're going to come back to it. As meanwhile, Killick brings two more letters for Stephen and hangs around at the door to hear what they contain, given their interesting seals. Yeah. So you know, Stephen takes these two letters, opens up the first one, and then says to Jack, you, you mentioned this was coming. He goes, It'll give you joy. Sam is made. He's to be ordained by his own bishop on the 23rd. And, and Jack has a very mixed reaction, this idea about being made, you know, you know, for Jack's world, that's having your first command. It's also about becoming a post captain. But you know, the flip side of this reaction is that Jack has grown up in a world that looks down on papists. And, you know, while he didn't have any trouble with Sam before at, in, in his orders, this idea of Sam being, as Jack would say, a full blown popish priest he's a little bit worried about but thinking further he says you know he's very fond of sam and if this gives sam joy well then he says well i'll be damned (laughs) again again a little irony and say you know perhaps some uh some catholics would agree with with jack and his reasoning and his comment i don't know (laughs) well Jack is called up on deck as Stephen opens up the second letter with another interesting seal here, more like an official British seal here. And it's a note to him from the British embassy there in Lisbon asking Stephen to call at his earliest convenience. Well, the launch is about to leave and, and we see Stephen now coming on deck in you know what we're told is his second best uniform. Killick says that you know, he's headed for a dark old church and he doesn't need his very best uniform to go there here. And we learn that Stephen is preparing to go ashore along with all the Irish, Polish and North England Catholics of the crew to attend Padim's mass. And, you know, as they're, as they're sailing in to go on shore, everything looks different to the crew members, the people, how they dress, the sights and the sounds of the city. But once they get into the Benedictine church, and as O'Brien writes, once they get past the holy water, they might all have been at home. Everything is once again familiar to them. And at the end of the mass, they all light candles for Padine. Uh, Stephen heads for the embassy, and the rest of the crew 
returns to the ship. Oh, it's a really nice moment, isn't it? That they all get this touch of contact with it, with a consistent world, with a world that they can rely on. And they happen to get it by walking through the doors of a church. Strikes me that these days, some of us get that by going to McDonald's. You know, you can walk into a McDonald's in any city in the world and you know where the holy water is straight away. Too, too true. And good news, Mike, us, us having really wondered at the prospects of this Quinta de Montserrat, and was it real? It turns out it is real. At the embassy, Stephen is assured that he can accept Sir Joseph's invitation with perfect confidence, and the embassy even offers to provide a coach and an escort. And Stephen thinks, no, 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 I am going to take a horse. I'm going to ride myself. That'll be quicker. He sends a message off to the ship and rides off to see Sir Joseph. Now, Mike, I, I hesitated a minute here because at the end of the letter of Mark, when Stephen decided just to head off on his own, he was traveling the Swedish countryside and that ended badly for him. So right. I'm kind of hoping, I'm hoping that he can find himself, find his way in one piece out to this estate of Montserrat. When he gets there, he's going to get some refreshment. And I think it, this could be a good moment for us and our listeners to step away for a minute, grab some refreshment of our own and gather again together after a short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back from break. I hope you've all gotten a little bit of refreshment here. And, you know, we rejoin Stephen and Sir Joseph. Stephen's made it through. He's found him. And Sir Joseph is apologizing for forgetting to give the first man who had contacted Matron in the street, Sir Joseph's letter. He's, he's still got the letter there in his pocket. And he, he shows it to Stephen. And he invites Stephen in for a drink after his long ride, you know, long, hot ride. But Stephen says he would prefer to sit in the shade of the grass by the side of a brook. And as they're walking over, Blaine asks Stephen why he's carrying his hat in such a funny way, saying that, you know, if, if I were you, I'd be putting this over my head so I didn't die from the sun. And when they sit down, Stephen shows Sir Joseph the contents of his hat. It's an insect that Stephen captured right outside Sintra and he brought to show Sir Joseph. Now, Blaine is thinking, gosh, it looks an awful lot like a praying mantis, but not exactly, and he can't place it. And Stephen says, ah, Sagapito. And Blaine thinks, yes, but wait, I, you know, he actually had never seen a specimen. He'd heard about this, and he's admiring this thing that looks like a praying mantis, these long serrated legs. And Blaine says, you know, where in the world did you find him? And Stephen points out, ah, there are no hymns. This is a female. They reproduce asexually, which Stephen adds must surely ease the tensions of family life. So <laughs> we get... Well, how, how many different ways out of matrimonial strife does he, does he want to find? Now that he's married to the woman, he's A, wishing he was in a monastery and B, wishing that they were both um, asexual insects. He's a, he's a strange fellow, our Stephen. He is, he is, and this is this is such a strange little predatory bush cricket. It's it's yeah. just under five inches long, so it's one of Europe's largest insects. It's wingless. It's also called sometimes the spiked magician because it kind of waves its forearms in a very enchanting way as it approaches its prey. Has these very strong fore and back legs with sharp spines that they you know uses to catch its prey. 
and they are carnivorous and have a tendency towards cannibalism. Oh. So, and there are, as as Cena said, there's there's no record of a male in the species here. So, you know, maybe maybe we can pop a little picture of this rarely seen guy out uh, out out to you here. Ian, you pointed out this is another backward glance amongst many. I mean, some that we've kind yeah. of ridden right over here and haven't mentioned so far. Back to Master and Commander. Yeah, we had the Prey Mantis in Master and Commander also in juxtaposition with the mention of Molly Hart. And we've got the Bush Cricket here, Saga Pedo, um, in juxtaposition with the mention of Diana and her relationship to Stephen. O'Brien can't resist an insect metaphor or a a, a venomous animal metaphor when it comes to relationships with women. And at the same time, just a couple of paragraphs ahead, when Sir Joseph Blaine starts to bemoan the hardships of the journey that he's just been on. He talks about goat's milk in the coffee and goat's milk in the tea. And Mike, that was one of our earliest ever vaguely lewd jokes. And our first reading of Master and Commander was the goat's milk reference. So we're getting lots of little reminders here of the first one or two volumes of the canon. Now, Blaine is surprised to see Stephen letting this bush cricket go since they're so rare. And Stephen then has a little musing for Blaine. He says, who is without superstition? It seems to me that letting her go may have a favourable influence upon our meeting. For I assume it is no trifling matter that has brought you to Portugal. So Stephen's willing to go along with a bit of superstition here, setting the insect free because she might be auspicious. Blaine explains that he's absolutely right. It has been no trifling matter. The Spanish ambassador in London had come to the foreign office asking if the surprise had been sent to encourage rebels in the Spanish South American possessions. And they'd, they'd smoke this somehow. We'll talk in a second some more about their suspicions as to how. The Foreign Office had replied that the surprise was going to be privateering against American whalers, had trotted out this cover story about how they were going to be looking out for China-bound ships, French ships, that the confusion probably arose from the fact that the French had had exactly that same mission in mind for the Diane, the Diane now having been captured by the British, and that this would allow them to provide proof of this French intention to undertake this mission. But it sounds like the Spanish ambassador was still a little bit suspicious, was keen to see the evidence. And Mike, this is all now undercutting what we've been taking for granted for a couple of chapters now, which is that it's all going to be okay for the surprise to go off on this long, long awaited mission to South America. This clearly must be urgent because as we're going to find out, Blaine's really sacrificed himself a bit with the journey that he's undertaken. Yeah, Blaine explains that, you know, he's had this hellish journey overland between all these fighting armies to get across Portugal and and get to Stephen, get, you know, sort of through Spain and down to Portugal. And Ian, what's, you know, history-wise, what's going on here now? Well, it's a really interesting bit of real timeline confluence here. There's a couple of things happening in this chapter and the next one that help us tie into a real timeline that O'Brien has in mind. We're at the end of the Peninsula Wars here. That puts us probably in the early summer of 1813, just before the Battle of Victoria. The Peninsula Wars was a six-year conflict triggered by Napoleon, having invaded Spain six years earlier. That brought, in the end, the Spanish and the Portuguese as army allies together with the British and the Irish to try and kick Napoleon out of the peninsula. And they've been partly successful so far. So here they are with the remains of these armies still partly in the field. That's what Blaine has been fighting to get past. Meanwhile, we've got the decisive battle of Victoria coming in the near future here. Arthur Wellesley, now known as the Duke of Wellington, 
is a military superstar to rival Nelson. And the world has come on a long way. The conflict in Europe has come on a long way um, since Trafalgar. And now these peninsular wars have been a big focus for the battle between the United Kingdom and her allies on the one side and France and Napoleon's empire on the other side. Well, yeah, Stephen's kind of befuddled. He wonders why Blaine didn't just sail straight to Portugal, yeah. you know, straight to Lisbon. But Blaine says he didn't want to risk getting windbound and miss Stephen. He, you know, he wanted to get to Stephen before Stephen left again. And he didn't want to get seasick and lose his grasp of the situation. So Blaine is another one that gets very, very seasick here. Blaine says the only way the Spanish could know about the surprise is from the man who had protected Ledward and Ray. And Blaine and Warren thought that this might happen, thought that the Spanish might be alerted. And that's why they had planned for the surprise to stop in Portugal so that they could alter the mission if it was necessary. Now, Stephen had long ago realized that the South American mission really was to counter French influence there, not just to sort of go in and try to unseat Spain. And, and the French are still important. Blaine says, you know, that mission still needs to be completed. But at the moment, they absolutely must completely discredit the report about the surprise being involved. So Blaine says, right, what has to happen right now is the surprise needs to really continue privateering and avoiding all contact with the supporters of independence. Yeah, so ostentatiously privateering is going on. So we've got to really play this thing up and really scrub the South American thing at the moment. And, and Blaine looks at Stephen, kind of waiting for him to comment, but Stephen, you know, does not. He wants to hear a little bit more, and Blaine continues. He says, you know, kind of something else is happening here. The French have learned through Ledward's protector, again, this same leak in the ministry, that Britain is extremely weak in Java and the East Indies. And the French have now sent a mission to the Sultan of Pulo Prabang, It's a a piratical Malay state in the South China Sea to ask that that state become a French ally and help build vessels so that they can cut off the British East Indiamen coming from Canton. You know, let's take advantage of this British weakness here. The French have sent shipwrights and tools, materials, guns, and treasure, hoping to take advantage of the great forest in this country, the splendid harbor there and the population of hardy pirates that are already there. They've already got a large number of generations of pirates, but up until now, they have not had ships large enough to to harass the Indiamen, and the French want to provide them with that. Lo and behold, and here's the big reveal, the man in charge of that French mission, the French negotiator, is Ledward. We remember Ledward, right, who had done Jack in. Ledward speaks melee like a native, and Ray is with Ledward. They're headed to this, you know, to this melee state here. So at, at that, Blaine and Matron kind of head back in for a little refreshment. They're a little behind, you know, us, the listeners at the break here. Uh, Blaine says, you know, he needs to get a little bit of tea here. Um, and and Matron says, you know what, now that now that we're done, you know, with the first part of this, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for a little wine, if you don't mind. And they're headed back in to this Montserrat. And and Blaine makes a passing reference to this English author, William Beckford. He said, you know, if Beckford had this place, you know, obviously they're going to make good tea here. (laughs) And it's a really interesting reference to pick up on as well. This guy, Beckford, William Beckford, had written 
a book called Vatek, or Vatek, a gothic tale of debauchery among Arabian rulers. And it was a strange reference. I mean, Blaine even mentioned it to Stephen, said, did you ever read it? And I think Stephen says, you know, I, I, I tried it because somebody whose taste I respected recommended it. It's a really, really interesting connection. It's absolutely true that this estate was, uh, was owned or subleased by William Beckford. This guy was a bit of an adventurer and had a taste for the exotic things in life, you might say. In this character of Beckford and in the fictional character of Vatek and this Gothic novel and of some of the fellow courtiers of Vatek described in this Gothic novel, let's just say, Mike, we get a bit of a foreshadowing of the state of affairs in Pulau Prabang and what's waiting for Ledwood and Ray and for Stephen there in Malaysia. I also wonder about the, the, the gender that's going on here. Beckford was bisexual, we, we believe, and we get a hint as well, I think, that Blaine's own sexuality is a bit ambiguous, and it's interesting that it's Blaine who says, had you ever read this book? It's an interesting opportunity for us to, to find out a little bit more about Blaine's character, and just as importantly, it's a look forward to what Stephen's going to encounter along with Ray and Ledwood when we finally get to Pulau Prabang in this book. Having gotten their drinks and sitting back in the garden, Blaine tells Stephen that Britain is putting together a counter mission, to counter Ledward's mission. Um, and it's going to be led by a man named Edward Fox. And this is a man that Stephen had met at the Royal Society when Fox presented a paper on Buddhism spread eastward. You know, Stephen calls Fox a man of unusual parts. Now, Blaine agrees and says that, you know, Fox has never really been appreciated. He's always been moved around. He's been appointed temporarily. And Blaine says he may have a fault of manner, a certain unorthodox, uh, a certain bitterness from want of recognition. So, you know, we've been a lot on, you know, people's characters in this yeah. chapter. Maybe that's a little bit of what Standish is, you know, kind of calling out for us too. So Blaine, however, thinks that Fox was made for this mission. And he also notes that Fox is a friend of Raffles, the governor of Java, who Blaine calls another interesting man. And, and in fact, Stephen has read some of Raffles' letters to Banks and, and you know, thoughts between Raffles and Banks of, of kind of founding a new zoological society and, and some of the things that Raffles is doing in Java there. Blaine says that they got their information on Ledwood from Fox, who'd been in Penang at one time. And it's vital, they learn, that the British envoy should arrive before the French, who have already closed or are close to closing the deal. Even though the French have got a head start, Fox assures Blaine that the negotiations take a month or two. Since the British control the Sunda Strait, which is the narrow gap that gets you into the, the archipelago, basically, of what we would now call Indonesia, since the British control that strait, the French have got longer to go to get there. Now, Blaine's plan to handle the Spanish ambassador and deal with the Sultan simultaneously is to have Pullings take the surprise on the original journey that they had already planned to go cruise on South America, cruise on French interests and, and generally do, do some privateering, leave the government agreement still intact, but only to engage strictly in that privateering that we just talked about. Stephen and Jack, meanwhile, are going to take the envoy Fox to Pulau Prabang aboard the Diane, which has been brought into the service. And Blaine explains that the Admiralty has been waiting, get this, to announce Aubrey's reinstatement to the list, alongside news of a big victory, hopefully, to save official face. But as the text says, now it is agreed that the country's interests will be better served by openly, publicly, almost ostentatiously, 
reinstating him and giving him this command. What more convincing proof, asks Blaine, that neither of you are going to Peru. So, Mike, two big turnabouts here in the story. First of all, Spain is off as far as Jack and Stephen are concerned, and they're headed to Malaysia. Second of all, Jack's long-for reinstatement is right there in front of us within reach again. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of blown away here. Just like that, right? We're, we're you know, boom. Oh, you know, we're going to do this great big mission. And if that went well, you know, maybe you'll be restored to the list. And we got to get you out of here because, you know, you're really getting in your own way to, oh, this is this is a done deal. Or, you know, of course, we remember this is Patrick O'Brien writing and nothing's ever a done deal. But, right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Well, Stephen, you know, nods. And Blaine continues. He says that after Pullings finishes the surprises journey and, and the situation in Pulu Prabang is dealt with, that the surprise and the Diane will then meet at a given rendezvous point and then return together by South America. And then Matron can make some of the discrete contacts that they had originally planned to complete in the mission to South America. So, you know, the plot thickens even more. So, you know, yes, now we have this wildly divergent thing, but we're going to come back again. So this long promised admission to South America is still on. Well, Blaine says, what do you say to that, Matron? And this is the text here. Stephen looked at him for some moments with an expressionless face. And then he said, it is a grandiose scheme. I am in favor of it, but I cannot answer for Aubrey. Mm-hmm. Blaine says, well, no, of course you cannot. Yet an answer must we have within two days, no more. Clearly, I do not know Aubrey as well as you, not by a thousand miles, but I have little doubt of what he will say. Period. <laughs> End of chapter three. I don't know. What do you think? Do we have any doubt of what Jack might say to be reinstating commanding the I, Diane? I don't think we have any doubt at all. And if there's any doubt in your mind, it's dispelled immediately by turning the page. So Mike, you and I are going to keep rolling for a while and get into the beginning of chapter four. It's a long chapter and there's loads for us to consider. First of all, let's look at the first paragraph of chapter four. Jack Aubrey's answer was yes, as Stephen had known very well it would be. But with what tearings of heart, what anxious self-questioning did he produce it at length, well on in the 11th hour? And what sad, longing, perhaps guilt-stricken looks did he direct at the surprise already under sail, far down there in the Tagus as as he rode away, leaving his shipmates low-spirited, disappointed, and in some cases, even bereft. This happens very often in the service. We've we've learned to expect it, but it's clearly an emotional wrench for Jack. It's an emotional wrench for the crew as well. Some of the surprises are angry. Some of them said, I knew all along it was going to be an unlucky voyage. They're still remembering Standish falling in the water. Even so, none of them took Jack's offer of wages and a paid passage home. They are all still enough privateers men at heart that they're going to stick with the mission and stick with Captain Pullings. Yeah, and O'Brien tells us that these surprises became even more comfortable knowing that Jack would be, as they said it, on their own Diane, the ship that they personally had cut out, and that they were going to rendezvous with them again. They were further assured by the fact that Jack left his wine and his cold weather clothes aboard. You know, and the doctor left crates of books. So it looks like, well, okay, they're they're really planning to be back here. I mean, here's two of the things that they each love the most here. Yeah. Now The officers knew 
it's going to be harder to command the fierce crew without their legendary captain aboard. He's a legend in courage, a legend in success, a legend in good fortune. However, Poolings was assured by Stevens belief that Poolings would certainly get a command if he brings the surprise home safely. And Wes and Davidge think, whoa, Jack's reinstated. Poolings gets a command. Hey, that can't do anything but help our reinstatement as well. So we're, you know, we're going to make this a, a, a home run. Well, they wouldn't use that metaphor, but <laughs> no, no, <laughs> whatever but, the cricket. <laughs> right. They're, they're seeing there's a, there's a long-term payoff for them here, even though they're upset to be uh, missing out on whatever it is that Lucky Jack is going to be up to. Um, it was also tough on Jack himself. So he's got to travel quickly over land. He can only take Killick and Bondon with him as his two followers, plus Stephen, of course. And he's really touched by the uncomplaining, deserted looks of those left behind. Mike, this reminds me of the, the expression on our dog's face when we walk out of the door without her, you know. Right. <gasps> You're leaving me. They've got to travel very quickly through Portugal and northwest Spain in the midst of this, you know, war-torn territory. They've got the possibility of being swept up in the tide of what remains of the Peninsula War. And the text says, nothing, travel, guilt, extreme discomfort could take away from the deep glow in his heart. If he could stay alive for the next couple of weeks or so, he would be gazetted and he would have a command. The charming promises would become infinitely more solid realities, changing from what his mind believed to what his whole person knew as a living fact. The fact, however, could not be mentioned, nor the glow acknowledged, even the inward singing must be repressed. And Mike, in, in the previous chapter, we had Stephen enacting the pieties of Catholicism to help you know, the fortunes of Padine. And here we've got Jack enacting the, the superstitions of seafarers here going, I'm going to touch a belaying pin. I'm not going to mention this out loud until I know it's a sure thing. No, I'm, I'm exactly with you. I can see Jack, you know, looking around this carriage or coach or whatever they're riding and going, where the hell do I find a belaying pin here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm with you. Well, Jack and Stephen are riding cavalry horses because of these Peninsular Wars. There are lots of them available here. And they're riding ahead of the coach, arranging supper and lodging. Sir Joseph and Standish, ah, Standish back again, Jack had offered him a lift. And all of the instruments and Stephen's many documents are riding in the coaches or carriages with Bonded and Killick as they're, they're changing horses and coaches and carrying all along the way. So... Every once in a while, Sir Joseph insists that Bondin and Killick come inside the coach when there's blinding rain. And, and it's a tough journey, but it's becoming very manageable, even enjoyable, because especially Sir Joseph is thinking compared to my journey up here, you know, he's now surrounded by all these seamen. So they, you know, they're not worried about <laughs> being, you know, robbed or beaten here. And there's, there's a really kind of lavish living. It's being supplied by <laughs> Stephen and Jack along the way. The, they're having kind of these royal suppers in the evening. And then Standish plays this violin beautifully. And in Santiago, one night, Standish is playing. And Jack kind of sees something isn't quite right, pulls open a door. And this, this officer from the first foot guards kind of stumbles into the room, clearly been <laughs> listening at the door. And this Colonel Lumley, who loves and misses good music, later that evening asked Stephen if Standish might consider becoming his secretary. He says, really, there's not much of a job to it. My clerks will handle everything. But, you know, I just need to have this music around me here. Well, the offer is made. It's accepted. And Standish 
waves goodbye to everyone the next morning at dawn. Everybody is delighted that Standish is pleased. And, you know, he's, he's very happy that he never has to go back to sea again. And, and I suspect they're a little delighted to have Standish gone. So as you say, Ian, you know, not with a, not with a bang, but with a whimper here. Yeah. <laughs> and just coming on. It's very weird. I'm, like I said before, I'm a little bit oddly put out by this Standish story. I feel like he was getting ginned up as a secondary character, maybe another equivalent to Professor Graham that we had back in the Ionian mission, but now he's gone. And I'll, I'll risk a spoiler here, Mike. Apart from being referred to a little in the future, we're not going to have Standish with us again. So he's been built up as over several chapters. And I mean, he wasn't anyone's favorite person, but that's not been an obstacle to someone being an abiding character in the canon here. I, I don't know really what's going on. The, the more I get into the book, the more I think that those first two chapters and specifically Standish's little cameo role that he's had might have been added after O'Brien had already worked out the main strands of the story. And, and maybe it feels like the real book is starting here in chapters three and four and chapters one and two had been added. I, I, I can't think why that would be. Maybe they were added to give room for some more exposition to catch up new uh, American readers now that O'Brien's got a US publisher at this point in his timeline. Maybe, God forbid, just to fill space. Or it's still pretty great stuff for for space filler. Who knows? Mike, I just, I'm noticing here that I've read chapter three and four at a gulp with a big grin on my face, really enjoying this. And I look back on chapters one and two and I think, uh, to be honest, I could have taken them or left them. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that uh, we're, we're getting underway here. You know, we took a, 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 an extremely long time to set up the chessboard and explain the history of the pieces here. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, th- there's another interesting question here, which is that they have traveled overland through Portugal and northwest Spain to get to La Coruña, where they meet the cutter Nimble. And there's an interesting question here. Why would they have done that? And I'm not altogether sure, Mike. I'd be interested to hear what you think. That It certainly wouldn't have been much faster to go by land. In fact, they could only have gone as fast as a, as a sailing vessel by riding really hard and changing the horses, you know, every, uh, every few dozen miles. I don't think there was a more favorable wind for them to catch in La Coruña than they would have had in Lisbon. But I, I guess what we've got is that we know Sir Joseph doesn't like traveling by sea we can presume i suppose that stephen would have been carrying confidential documents that he might not have wanted to carry with him on board you know a foreign flagged packet ship or any kind of civilian ship but it is kind of a weird situation here isn't it 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 is i think you mentioned the only some some plausible reasons but but the one big plausible reason here was this idea that wait a minute richard sharp is out there somewhere (laughs) <laughs> and maybe, just maybe, in some fan fiction somewhere, somebody is going to engineer a meeting between these two on, on the way up the road to northwest Spain here. Yeah, very good. Sh- sharp. <laughs> well, I don't know what the novel would have been called. Uh, <laughs> Sharp's Sea Adventure. I think Sharp did go to sea at some point. I think he was pre- he was around for some, some aspect of Trafalgar. But wouldn't that have been great if, if Sharp and Aubrey could have met? Even better if Sharp and Aubrey and Hornblower could have met. That would have been really cool. <laughs> there you go. It's a great idea. Well, in, in the meantime, you know, they're boarding the Nimble here. It's it's 200 tons, 14 guns, one of the largest, you know, Royal Navy cutters 
but still small enough that even Matron has to bend over in the main cabin. And, and interestingly, you know, we looked it up and, and there were there were actually four cutters kind of uh, between 1778 and 1816 called the Nimble. Wow. So, you know, all of them of either 10 or 12 guns. So we got a lot of history to choose from. And, and I love O'Brien saying, as is often the case in the Navy, you know, on these very small ships, there's a very tall captain. And this very tall <laughs> captain says, you know, gentlemen, would you like some some sandwiches and some celery to hold you over until dinner. And another great, you know, sort of O'Brien, the way human nature works. They kind of notice that the sandwiches are already cut and, and the wine's been chilling. And so they're like, oh, of course, of course, of course, Jack's always going to take it. But I, I thought these are great little human moments here. Yeah, and, and we get an, another nice little human secondary character here. I've got to say, I, I like Michael Fitton better than I like Mister Standish, and he's not around. He's not around for very long either. Um, the captain of the Nimble is this officer called Fitton, and almost by accident, Jack chances on, on the understanding that Fitton's father John had been aboard ship with Jack Aubrey on the third of their embarkations together. John Fitton, this boy's father, had died just three feet from where Jack was standing during the Battle of St. Vincent. And Michael Fitton tells Jack that he remembers meeting Jack as a boy and said that his father had spoken of him often. And it's a really nice touching moment. And of course, in service families, in, in, in bloody wartime, this must have happened quite a few times that men would encounter sons and nephews of men that they served with and who had fallen. So now, Stephen steps in to help the dinner along in the midst of this story and is aware of Sir Joseph being sick nearby and tells Lieutenant Fitton how glad he is to see a cutter and asks why it's called a cutter. And Jack doesn't correct Stephen, um, tells him that he's seen hundreds of cutters and had had them explained to him multiple times. Jack simply says they're cutters because they go cutting along, you know, skillfully handled, smiling at young Fitton. They are the fastest craft in the navy uh, and he's not wrong uh, so besides there being many cutters called the nimble um i think there was a real michael fitton too there, there was he joined the navy in 1780 he didn't make lieutenant until 1804 um, and he never rose above lieutenant despite a very impressive record you know he's commanding cutters and schooners capturing over 40 ships in his active sea life but as 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 one scholar found, you know, kind of digging deep in, as a master's mate, he may have deserted from Captain Edward Thornborough's HMS Hebe in 1784, thus earning Thornborough's kind of undying enmity. And and Thornborough goes on to become a rear admiral in 1801. So apparently this guy was fabulous, except that he had you know, PO'd the wrong guy. Yeah. It it sounds like just the kind of guy that O'Brien would have liked. Highly accomplished, highly successful, held back because he had no interest and it upset kind of the wrong person with influence here. Now, <laughs> uh, sadly, there is no record of the father, John Fitton. So I think that part is added strictly for our for our story, just as probably there's no record of, of John Aubrey. You know, no, somebody. indeed, indeed. Right, right. Oh, my God. It's, it's great stuff, really great. Great job digging that up. 
So we're, we're all okay now, it seems, with the idea of what a cutter is and what that means for its rig and its whole shape. Jack and Michael Fitton talk cutters nonstop for the rest of the dinner. Stephen heads off to bed thinking about his own habit of keeping diaries. And Mikey, another little look back over the, the, the time that Stephen has written in his journal in the past. He thinks that he had probably written much more in those journal entries when he'd first met Jack, even though he's very low from the failure of the rising, very low from the loss of Mona. And by the way, this is the first time we've had the name of his, his former lover, Mona, mentioned by name. And very low from the miseries in France, and as the text says, from the destruction of all our sanguine, generous, youthful hopes. And there he's talking about the hopes of the people who were campaigning for emancipation in Ireland. He thinks that since then he's changed a lot. He's changed a lot from the man who told James Dillon that he no longer felt loyalty to groups or nations, only to individuals. Uh, at that time, he had agreed with Dr. Johnson that the form of government was of no consequence to the individual and that he would not move a finger to bring about the millennium or independence. And Stephen was thinking, here I am, hurrying through this wicked sea in an attempt, however slight, at bringing about both if the defeat of Bonaparte can be considered the one and Catholic emancipation and the dissolution of the Union the other. And he's musing on the fact that you know, he's he's found a purpose in life, partly at odds with some of his very strong notions of individual liberty and individual responsibility earlier in his career. And he thinks, well, maybe I'll take a fresh look at those diaries when I'm back in the grapes, when we're back in London, in just a few pages' time. Yeah. Well, in the morning, Fitton and Jack hope to show Stephen the cutter and her running bowsprit when the rain stops, but the rain doesn't stop. And and by Friday, when Stephen is actually ready to go up and see it, the weather is fair, the bowsprit's been run back out and stays back out until they come into Portsmouth on this warm May day with only a little drizzle. Now, Sir Joseph heads to London, promising to get orders sent down to Admiral Martin, the port harbor there for Jack, and to, to see them in London next week. You know, Stephen and Jack discuss getting word to Sophie and Diana about their return. And, and Stephen's thinking that Diana's in you know, a very delicate condition now, and he doesn't want to overwhelm her or surprise her. Uh, I think he wants to stay another day in his monastery, to be honest. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Because you know, Jack wants to send a post chase with Bonden and Killick. But, you know, she was saying, no, 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 no. Oh, my God. They'll, you know, she'll think that, you know, we've been killed or something. You know, we're not going to do that. So we'll go for something less ostentatious. We'll send a child on a mule with a note telling the women not to be alarmed if they see us soon and that we're well and we send our love. And so <laughs> great, great plan. Just 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 follow right. off the letter. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. You think I'm going to be gone for years? I happen to be right down the road, but hey, I'll send a boy on a mule with a note. Great plan, Stephen. Surprised you're not writing the Dear Abby column for us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Port Admiral named Martin sees them and invites them into his birthday celebration here in, I forget which, which pub or hotel it was in Portsmouth. While they're enjoying conversation with post captains and with the physician of the fleet, they get interrupted. The landlord's son runs up to Stephen. There is a coach outside with some ladies asking for you. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, muttered Stephen. Diana was at the near side window. She leant out and cried, Oh, Matchery, my dear, what a monster you are to terrify innocent women like this. 
And then Stephen invites them in to see Jack and to join the celebration. And Sophie calls out, oh, Stephen, pray bring him out and let us all go home together at once. I do not want to lose a minute of him, nor of you either, dear Stephen. Oh. Oh. Best laid plans and all that. Yeah. Gosh, don't we get, uh, this is Diana. This is this is Sophie. I, I just love this this moment here. This is so like each of them. Well, Mike, th- this sounds like a great moment for us to pause chapter four. Um, we've learned a lot in just a, a few pages. It feels like we've had Blaine's new plan. We didn't see that coming. Right. We're left wondering: Will they ever? Will they ever? Ever? Ever get to South America? Pullings is headed that way. Will Jack and Stephen ever get to South America? Meanwhile, who cares? Jack's restored to the list. He's going to be the commander of the Diane if all goes well, if his right. interview pans out in London. And of course, this is Patrick O'Brien. Lots can happen before some of these promised excitements actually come about. And, and I'm thinking, you know, even beyond that, the idea of them coming face to face with Ledward and Ray again in, in what could well be by the time they get there, very hostile territory. It's a little disconcerting. Pullings off on his own a little bit. You know, he's got he's got Davidge and West, but you know, with the surprise privateering across the globe, I'm I'm kind of selfish. I'm I'm hoping we get to hear some of that story too, because now that yeah. the Jonah Standish is gone. But but I'm wondering, you know, what does the crew think of Pullings as captain? And you know, and then of course, as you say, you know, what awaits Stephen and Jack in London as we continue to finish chapter four next week Um, and can we really say to their credit that they finally learned what you and i both know mike that the secret to a to a good life is happy wife happy life ah i think (laughs) i think there's only one way to check up on this Uh, what do you say mike next week to just a little bit more patrick o'brien Oh, with all my heart. Trousering. Right, exactly. Uh, <laughs>